Well, welcome everybody coming and returning back to our Explaining the Faith series. It's awesome to be back again with you. I'm Father Chris Alar from here at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy. And today we're going to be continuing our talk of taking you back to seminary. And I love this because uh, you guys, I'm able, I think, to give you a great summary of what I learned in the seminary, share my notes with you. Also, uh, everything I've learned since being a priest, uh, things from being taught by like Father Seraphim teaching me and others, and you get to do that without having to go to class or pay tuition. So, <laughs> so this is great, and we're excited today. The next two weeks are going to be, I think, uh, next week's even better, and so we hope that you'll join us next week. It's funny because Brother Mark was uh, was saying to me, he says, boy, I, I hope you bring a good a good presentation. I said, well, next week's better, so this week I'll just talk about next week's presentation. <laughs> so uh, actually, no, uh, next week is Eucharistic Miracles, and uh, there's some great stories, some great uh, photographs of these Eucharistic miracles. That's coming next week. But today we're going to explain what many Catholics are not able to answer fully or clearly, and that is, where is the Eucharist in the Bible? Where is it in Scripture? Well, Jesus says, John 6, eat my body and drink my blood, but he was just talking uh, symbolically, figuratively, and that's the end of the argument. No, there's a lot more to it. So let's begin with a prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you to send the Holy Spirit down upon us to open our minds and our hearts to receive the grace you wish to bestow. Give us that teaching in our hearts that we can live, the, the gift of your grace to be able to know the true presence of the Eucharist and to be able to show our faith when we live it to those who do not believe. And we ask all this through the intercession of our Mother Mary, and through Christ our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Okay, so you can see from the first slide, today's topic is called the Eucharist in Scripture. It really is leading up to next week's talk, as I said, on the miracles. Now, Jesus said that he will be with us until the end of time, but then he ascended to the Father. So how would any buddy who doesn't believe in the Eucharist believe that Jesus has remained with us. He is remaining with us. He, when, when you're with someone, you're not just with them, you know, um, uh, symbolically, you're with them physically. And so when Jesus says, I will be with you, the words of the original language were physically with you, not just spiritually. And so how does Jesus remain physically with us? The Eucharist, the body, blood, soul, and divinity. At the Last Supper, Christ instituted a memorial of the Eucharist and entrusted it to the priest. Non-Catholics will always point out, there you go. It's a memorial, which just means that he did it once, he'll never do it again, and he shared the cedar meal with the apostles. Done with it, he prepared his crucifixion and resurrection, it's done now. Yes, it's done, but it's perpetually present. And this is what we have to learn from our faith. The Eucharist is a memorial in the sense that it makes present the actual sacrifice that Jesus offered to the Father on the cross 
but not 2,000 years ago, for all eternity. The Son stands or sits, I should say, to the right hand of the Father, perpetually showing him his wounds. Think about this for a minute. Perpetually, Jesus Christ is sitting there, present to the Father, showing his wounds on behalf of us. Reminding the Father, showing the Father that the sacrifice he made is perpetual. It goes on forever. So on behalf of all of mankind, he is perpetually showing those wounds. It's not a reenactment. When we come to Mass, we participate in that sacrifice. So the Eucharist and the cross are one. The sacrifice and the cross and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one in the same sacrifice. The priest and the victim are the same. Jesus was the one being offered and the one offering. Now the priest stands in his place as the one being offered at that altar in persona Christi. The only manner of offering that is different is it's bloody versus unbloody. With Christ, he went through the bloody so that we don't have to go through the bloody. But the meaning of the sacrifice is the same. The priesthood and the Eucharist were established both at the Last Supper. Father, how do you mean the priesthood was established at the Last Supper? Well, remember in the Old Testament, the Aaronic priesthood was always, the ordination was always done by washing the feet. When Jesus washed the feet of the apostles in the Last Supper, he was ordaining them priests. This is, this is an actual event. And then the Eucharist was given by him for us. Now, the Eucharist was foreshadowed in the Old Testament Passover. All right, now, the meal was, we all know this, unleavened bread for leaving out of Egypt with haste. So the Eucharist is foreshadowing this. In Israel then, the Passover lamb that was sacrificed had to be eaten. If the Passover lamb was not eaten, the sacrifice was invalid and Christ is now that lamb. The wedding feast of the lamb, you've all heard me talk about this. The wedding feast of the lamb is the mass. The mass is heaven on earth. What we are receiving in the mass is a foretaste of heaven. And as you've heard me say, when we come up as the bride, Christ is the groom, the church is the bride. Who's the church? We are. And when you come up, you are united with your groom. As I always say, the groom enters into the bride and it's united. And so this here is union with our true spouse in the Eucharist. In the Eucharist, the sacrifice of Christ becomes the sacrifice also of the members of his body. We share in that sacrifice. So at Mass, when that priest raises the chalice and the paten, and this is the high point of the Mass, the concluding doxology, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but you should join in that sacrifice on that paten. Just don't sit in the back of church looking at your watch. Put on that paten your joys, your sorrows, your hopes, your dreams, your pleasures, your sorrows, your pains, everything, your suffering, your whole life. Put it on that paten. And so this is the offering of Christ for all the living and the dead 
in reparation for our sins and the sins of the whole world as we pray in the chaplet. That's why the chaplet is offering sacrifice. And by virtue of your baptism, you share in the offices of Jesus. The church fathers tell us this. Priest, prophet, and king. In fact, scripture tells us this. And so you are a priest. And when you pray, I offer you, eternal father, I offer you the body, blood, soul, and divinity of your dearly beloved son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the prayer of the chaplet. You're exercising your common priesthood and a priest offers sacrifice. So this is amazing. So let's look at our next slide, Brother Mark will put up. And that is transubstantiation. You've probably heard the term. But do we know what it fully means? All right. This means trans means to change. Substantiation means of substance. So the whole substance of bread and wine is changed completely. The substance of bread and wine is gone. Not the accidents. They remain. It looks like bread. It feels like bread. Tastes like bread. But the substance of what it is becomes the body and blood of Christ, and the wine becomes the blood of Christ. Now, when I was a little kid, I would go to Mass, and my father, we, you know, I was only five years old, and I would try to kneel and stand with the congregation, pretend I knew what I was doing, and and when we would be kneeling every Sunday at the moment of consecration, my father would lean over to me and he would say, now that's when Jesus enters the host. Now, actually that's incorrect, <laughs> but you gotta give a dad a big old kudos for saying and doing that for his child. Actually, Jesus doesn't enter the host. The host becomes body and blood. He doesn't enter in the host and share the bread with it. He, it becomes his body and blood. There's no substance left except Christ's body and blood. Now the accidents remain. So it, like I said, it, it has the mole, or it looks like the molecules of bread and wine. And these are the species. So we have two species. If you hear, do you want to receive under one species or two species? That's the precious blood is one species. Holy communion is the other species. The body, the blood. Those are the two species. Now, <clears throat> this is it. So in these two species, as I said, the accidents remain bread and wine, but the substance changes. The presence of Christ continues in the Eucharist. For how long? This is a good question. How long does Christ remain in that Eucharist? For as long as the species subsist or remain or exist. So as long as the precious blood is really there, so is Jesus. Now, soon as it's consumed or that it deteriorates, like if you put it in water, sometimes hosts that fall on the floor, they'll put it in water and then it dis uh, dissolves and then it's disposed of in the ground, that's proper. That is okay to do that because Christ is not present anymore after the dissolving of the species, the substance. And so um, this is important to understand. Now, what about some other little kind of helpful information? Like how often are we supposed to receive Holy Communion? All right, the church tells us, it recommends that we if we are in a state of grace, receive Holy Communion at every Mass. 
Now that doesn't mean you should if you're, in a, if you're in a state of sin, mortal sin, no. But if you're in a state of grace, which we all wanna be, we should receive at every mass. Now this isn't that hard because if we have grave sin on our soul, serious sin, you go to confession or you make an act of spiritual, uh, or excuse me, act of contrition as Catechism 1452 says, if your church isn't open and you're forgiven, as long as you have the intent to go back to the sacrament as soon as it's available, okay? Now, it's not hard because you go to confession for mortal sins. And what about the venial sins? Do you have to confess every single venial sin? No, because they're wiped away in the mass. At the penitential rite, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, then we, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. Lord have mercy. You see there in that penitential rite, venial sins are forgiven. So at the mass, you are spotless. Hopefully you haven't mortally sinned between the penitential rite and receiving Holy Communion, right? So keep your mind focused on the mass and that won't happen. Your mind, you don't want your mind to run amok like a wild horse. Keep it controlled, keep it focused on the mass and you will see you will walk up and receive spotless because your grave sins are forgiven in the confessional and all your venials are wiped away at the penitential rite. So when you receive Holy Communion, you're truly spotless. This is beautiful. All right, now the church obliges us to receive Holy Communion at least once a year during Easter. So that's our minimum requirement. Okay, can non-Catholics receive Holy Communion? Everybody will say no. Actually, the church teaches, yes, they can. Non-Catholics can receive if it's a grave necessity, such as like they are near death or you're in a remote place of the world where they may never see another priest or missionary again the rest of their lives, but they believe in Jesus. Um, that if they ask for it, of their own free will. They possess the um, required disposition so that they're not living a horrible state of sin. And they give some kind of evidence believing that Jesus is truly present in that Eucharist. They can receive Holy Communion, even non-Catholics. So for Catholics, it's, it should be something we desire. Like viaticum is received at the moment that we pass from this world to the next, to our eternal father. So it's basically the seed of eternal life. Holy communion is. For us Catholics at the end is called viaticum. And it is the, uses the grace that God gives us. St. Ignatius of Antioch called it the medicine of immortality, the antidote for death. Now, what about, I'm gonna give you a little bit of seminary before we get into the scripture passages. And I think this is powerful. All right, in seminary, we learn a lot about form and matter. Now this is gonna be the only really technical thing I give you today, but I think it's important. What is form and matter? It tells you the minimum that must be present to have a valid sacrament for confession or communion to be valid, you have to have a minimum amount of form and matter. What does that mean? Matter is just what it consists of, the material, the form are the words to be spoken. So the minimum that is needed for the Eucharist, okay, is form and matter. Now form is what is said by the priest to confect the Eucharist and 
what is done, so what is said and done, while the matter, so what's the matter, is what is ever required to be present, which is the bread and the wine. All right. So the matter is bread and wine, and the form are the words the priest says of institution, the consecration. The priest says it exactly as Christ does. And so, therefore, the matter is the host, or the matter of the host is the bread made from wheat. So this is why even the gluten-free hosts have a tiny, tiny bit of wheat. There's no such thing as a truly gluten host or it's not valid. It's just a tiny sliver, never enough to hurt anybody. Okay, then it has to be grape wine with no sulfates. So we don't use just table wine. Oh, Father, you can have mass at my house. I got some, um, some wine in the, in the refrigerator. No, because it's not supposed to have the sulfates. It has some water. Now, what are the words, the minimum words that have to be spoken at every mass? If the priest messes up any part of the mass, there's something called the church provides, called ecclesiae suple. That's Latin for that the church supplies. That means if I mess up the Our Father or the Creed or inadvertently even maybe forget it, um, yeah, that's not good. But the Mass is still valid, okay? If I say something in the Eucharistic prayer outside of the consecration that's incorrect, you notice that your priest maybe adds a word or takes out a word, it's still valid. However, the, in the words of institution constitute the form of the Eucharist, and these words have to be said exactly. Take this, all of you, and eat of it. For this is my body, which will be given up for you. Those words are the words of institution. They have to be said exactly. If your priest doesn't say it exactly like that, it's not valid. Please bring it to his attention. The other parts of the Mass, he can mess up a little bit inadvertently. Now, not intentionally. And for the wine, take this, all of you, and drink from it. For this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many. That's actually the scripture readings for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. Those words have to be exact. No ifs, ands, or buts to have a valid Eucharist. So not all the words of the Eucharistic prayer need to be exact, but those do. Those are the words of institution. All right, so we have this. All right, now when considering the bread and the wine, the words as those I just spoke have to be exact. Now, what about intention? What if there's a host laying on the floor and I do the consecration on the altar or you have a piece of host in your pew and you want it consecrated along with these hosts and you're hiding it so that you can take it home and do adoration? Nope. The priest has a corporal, that white cloth that's shaped of a square that he lays on the altar. What is to be consecrated is only, or what is actually consecrated, is only what he has the intent to consecrate. So if I put it on that corporal, the ciborium, the chalice, the paten, 
I had the intent to consecrate it. If you bring a host and put it in your pocket thinking I want to put it up there with or hold it in my hand, my father does the consecration so I can have this host at home, it's not. It's not consecrated. So in addition to form and matter, the intent of the priest matters. Now, this is why we place it on the, um, on the corporal. We, the priest, can he consecrate outside of mass? No. He can consecrate outside a church, but it has to be within mass. He can't consecrate outside of mass, and he must do both species. If a priest comes over to your hospital bed and only does the Eucharist, it's not valid. We have to do both the precious blood and Holy Communion, or the Blessed Sacrament. Now, what about extraordinary ministers? This is a touchy subject. Extraordinary ministers, according to canon law, can be used, but only in the case where the priest cannot physically distribute due to practicality, or maybe there's one priest giving a mass to a thousand people. That would take 25 minutes, 30 minutes to, to, to distribute Holy Communion. The church allows there to be some aspects of um, uh, help from an extraordinary, the word is not Eucharistic minister. The priest is the Eucharistic minister. The word is extraordinary minister. All right, let's keep going. Let's look now at scripture. All right, this is awesome. We're going to try to do our first slide on, I'm going to break up the Eucharist or Holy Communion in three readings today. We're going to talk about Cana, where our Lord brings us the precious blood. We're going to talk about the multiplication of the loaves, where the Lord brings us the Eucharist. And then we're going to talk about the bread of life discourse where Jesus says, that's me. So that's what we're going to look at today. So today, I want to start with Cana. Let's look at our first slide. This is the wedding feast at Cana. It is the only miracle, excuse me, the first miracle, what am I saying? The first miracle that Jesus does. The other one will be the only miracle in all four gospels. That's the multiplication of the loaves. Let's talk about Cana. This is Jesus' first public miracle. Now, he might have done others when he was younger, but this is his first public miracle. The one I'm going to be using is John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. And sorry, due to time, I was going to read all these, but I'm already way behind. So what happens at Cana? Our Lord is with his mother Mary and his apostles at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And weddings back then lasted an entire week. And all of a sudden, something that would be of the most embarrassing proportions to a young couple, and that is they ran out of wine. Now Mary is aware of this, and she goes to Jesus. But notice she doesn't tell him what to do she just makes him aware of the situation and says we have no wine or they have no wine jesus orders that it is filled with water and he says what what's the matter the water what's the form he prays over it and changes it into wine that wine will become the precious blood of our sacrifice of the mass. Now, Jesus here at Cana sanctifies the covenant of marriage and makes it a sacrament of love. Love is about giving and receiving. 
It's not just about receiving, it's about giving and receiving. And so this is very important. Now, when we do that, we become empty. We give of ourselves so much that we empty of ourselves so that we can receive, so that there's room in our hearts to receive. Pour out your heart for your loved ones so that there's room for you to receive in return. To be saved, our faith teaches in the Catholic faith that we must be empty so that we can receive all the graces from God. If we are filled with the riches of the world or what the world defines as riches, like sex, money, or power, then God can't fill us with the riches of the world to come. These are false riches of the world. Now, they can bring some happiness, you know, but I can pay my bills. If I have money, I have happiness, but they don't bring joy. Joy comes from God's grace. Now, being empty is what the wedding feast at Cana is all about, is what the wedding feast is. Mary then, once she sees this emptiness of the jars, which are symbolized in our emptying of ourselves, Mary says this, she doesn't expose the couple to shame by publicizing their empty jars. Look, they ran out of wine. We all know those. We have relatives and friends or even ourselves who do stuff like that. Now, in the same way, Mary brings our emptiness, our lack, our misery to Jesus quietly. She doesn't announce to the world, look the whole world how Father Chris is broken. Look at his emptiness. Look at his misery. Look at his struggles. She doesn't. She brings it to Jesus quietly. Now, Satan is the opposite. Satan will point out our misery. Satan will point it out as our cause to despair. Look at you. You're empty. You ain't got nothing. Your, your misery. He doesn't bring it to Jesus. He shouts it out to the world for our embarrassment and despair. Mary did the opposite. She quietly goes to Jesus. Now, Satan would point out our lack or our misery and say, give up. You have no good in you. You're empty. You got no good in you. But you know, Jesus can use even Satan. God can use even Satan to accomplish his tasks because that's what Jesus wants us to be, empty so that we recognize the need for his mercy. He told this to St. Faustina. St. Faustina said, Jesus, I've given you everything. He says, no, you haven't. She says, yes, I have. He says, no, you haven't. She says, yes, I have. What haven't I given you? And Jesus says, your misery. Empty yourself out. Be miserable, not in the sense that I want you sad all the time. She was joyful. St. Faustina was always joyful. But I want you to empty yourself out so that you receive and you have room to receive my graces. When you see your misery of your emptiness, a.k.a. your empty jar of Cana, you then recognize I need divine mercy, a.k.a. the wine of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, fill me with that wine. So that emptiness is filled with the divine wine, which is the Holy Spirit. Now, at Cana, Mary didn't say to Jesus how to do it. 
God bless these grandmas I see them come from the shrine from New York City and they're giving all the directions to me as the priest. God bless them, I love them. And they're telling me, Father, you need to do this and you need to do this and you need to do this. And I just smile, I laugh, I think it's endearing. But Mary didn't do that. She didn't do that. She went to Jesus and didn't say. She waited, she told him the problem, but she didn't tell him how to fix it. This is her example to us. In life, our trust, our obedience, our patience are necessary. And Mary gives us the example of that. You want to get to heaven? You need grace. And you want grace? You need a vessel. Jesus said, trust is the only vessel by which all grace is received. So you hear that? You want to get to heaven? Yes. You need grace? Yes. Trust is the vessel, the container, the jar of Cana, that all grace is received. What is that grace? The wine of the Holy Spirit. This is amazing. Now, Cana is a sign that our emptiness will be filled. As long as we have that trust, that vessel to capture it. That's what trust is, a living faith. I can have faith that God exists, but I don't do anything with it. It's not a living faith. If I don't love my neighbor and, and, and practice my faith, I'm not doing it. That faith is not living. I just did a video recently called Faith Alone. No, we need works of love. And so this is important. We have to have a living faith. So Mary was an advocate at Cana, and she will be for you too. All right, and then Jesus comes into her. What does Jesus say? Gee, thanks, mother. I love you. He goes, woman, what does this have to do with me? And non-Catholics will always point that out. Look at, even Jesus just recognizes her as just another human being. No way. All right, woman there is actually a very endearing term referring back to Genesis. It is very important that he said woman because why? Mary is now about to be a part of salvation history even more. Now she was of course at the Annunciation, her fiat, her yes, but it, in her immaculate conception is the greatest I guess. But now she's going in She's entering into the game, into a full amount. She's already been, but she's really now going in because it's a reversal of Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, Eve prompted Adam to defy the Lord and fall into sin. At Cana, now the new Eve, Mary, prompts the new Adam, Jesus, to begin the mission of salvation to undo this. This is incredible. Does Mary say how? No, she says, do what he tells you. Do you know these are Mary's final words in the New Testament? Jesus' first public miracle are Mary's last words. Do what he tells you. So let's look at our slide. Our next slide is an example of what's going on there. Notice they're filling the jars. Jesus is doing what? He's doing his miracle, but who's right there? Mary. The attendants are filling it, and not just filling it, but to the brim with water. They're probably sitting there thinking, what a waste of time. How many times have you done something the church has told us to do, like fasting, and you've probably said, you know, this is a waste of time. I have. But it's not. It's not useless. We see the fruit here shortly because Jesus is going to make it 
wine. And the disciples, it says, came to believe in him. This is huge. And so I want to show a quick video right now of my good friend, Jonathan Rumi. If you've seen the show, The Chosen, which has become extremely popular, Jonathan Rumi and I are very good friends. And I always thought this scene at Cana was very powerful. There's not a lot of dialogue. It's just look at Jesus in this video as he moves and, and makes this water become wine. It's only uh, less than a couple minutes. Everyone, please step outside. Just for a moment, Thomas. Once you make that first cut into the stone, it can't be undone. It sets in motion a series of choices. What used to be a shapeless block of limestone or granite begins its long journey of transformation. And it will never be the same. I'm ready, Father. Okay, so very powerful there. And as my friend Jonathan Ruby plays Jesus, he told me that was one of his favorite scenes. And there's more to it. You can see how he looks at Mary. If you watch that full episode, it's beautiful. So anyway, at Cana, we have the first of Jesus's signs. Again, this is chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Now, why wine? Why does the church make such a big deal here of wine? Why didn't we use fruit juice? Wine was the staple of the meal of the family then. And wine is a symbol of joy, the joy of love. And so it really was what they used at a wedding. Because the wine symbolized the joy of love. And why would he use it at the mass? The mass is a wedding. The Mass is a wedding feast of the Lamb, so it makes sense we're celebrating the joy of love at the Mass. We use wine. But God takes it to a new level. It also alludes to the blood that Jesus will pour out in love at the end of his life to seal that nuptial covenant, marital covenant with humanity. 
Again, he's the groom, the church is the bride. This, this is so incredible. And all the church fathers talked about this way before there was any other religion besides Catholicism. There was only Catholicism for 1,500 years. This is why we're Catholic. So, nevertheless, the bride, yeah, we are messed up. We're human beings. We make mistakes. We're sinful, and we're in constant need of purification. You know, all this talk, and people are going to say, like, well, Father, then how do you explain the sinfulness? And, well, yeah, Judas betrayed Jesus, one of his inner circle. All right, so we are in need of purification. So Mary does not ask anything of Jesus. All she says to him is, they have no wine. John 2, verse 3. She doesn't ask for anything specific. She doesn't say Jesus perform a miracle, much less to Jesus to go ahead and make some big spectacular event out of this. That may be one of the reasons he asked him to leave the room in that particular scene of Cana. She simply hands the matter over to Jesus and leaves it to him to decide what to do with the problem. This is the biggest mistake we make in prayer. When we take a problem to Jesus, we always tell him how to fix it. We always say, Jesus, um, I, I'm really struggling with this. Um, here's what needs to happen, da, 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 da. And even if we don't use those words, we, we, we do in our heart. We think we, we're, we're praying to Jesus to do what we want. No, how you pray is you give it to Jesus and let him fix it. You just bring it to him. That's true prayer. So Mary leaves everything to the judgment of her son. She doesn't tell him how to fix it. This is how she teaches us to pray, to bring it to God, to let him decide what he intends to do or how to do it. So from Mary, we can learn patience, trust, um, readiness to help, but we can also learn humility, the queen virtue, as Mary teaches us what to do to accept God's will. We should have constant hope that whatever God decides to do, it will be the best for us. That's the key. All right. Her maternal readiness to help appears here for the first time in scripture. She actually is stepping into the game. It's a fulfillment, I believe, of the queen mother in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus comes from the line of David. In the Davidic kingdom from which Jesus came, we have David and his son Solomon and all of these. Now, in that kingdom, there were many wives. The king had many, many wives. But who was the queen then? I always say the first wife, prettiest wife, smartest wife, it was the mother. And the mother was the queen. This is 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 19. And she had the function of counselor to the king. Mary fulfills this role. If Jesus comes from the line of David, why would Jesus change that the mother serves as his counselor? The king always had his mother as his counselor. His, the advocate for the people. She interceded for the people to the king. Why would Jesus change that? Well, I'm going to come from the line of David, but I'm going to cut my mother out. It's not about her at all. It's only, it's only about me. Yes, it is only about him, but that's why he chooses to involve his mother. Now, 
This counselor to the king was very important. How do we know this, Father? You're making this up. No, Proverbs 31, 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 2 through 4. And if the queen was the king's mother back in those days, and Jesus comes from that line, who does that make the queen today? Mary. You know, we don't like the way that Jesus says woman, but we have to understand, well, why doesn't he say mother? much more endearing. If I went home after football practice when I was in high school and my mom, uh, I love her to death, she'd always have a beautiful meal for me after practice. If I walked in and my dad was always getting home from work at the same time and I said, woman, what's to eat? I'd have to, to really be addressed by that. No, I would say mom or mother. Why didn't Jesus do that? The reason is he links the two of both mother and woman. He links the two. This title is important because he expresses Mary's role here. Now, I told you before, she's the woman of Genesis, the new Eve. Now, it points to the future where he's gonna be crucified, and when he's on the cross, he will say, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. So now he brings woman and mother together while he's on the cross. Jesus' last words. So we have Mary's last words at Cana, and we have Jesus' last words on the cross, saying, bring them together. The woman is our mother, and he gives us all our mother. This is amazing. And so this is what it's all about. It anticipates the hour where he will make her the woman, this woman, the mother of us all. So the title woman recalls the account of creation of Eve. And, and, and here's the thing. In her, Adam finds a companion that he longed for and he gives her the name woman. She shall be called woman. And in John's gospel, Mary represents that new woman. Because the companion of the new Adam, Jesus, is the new Eve, Mary. This is a powerful, our mother. Remember, Satan didn't overthrow just Adam. Satan didn't overthrow just Eve. Satan overthrew both Adam and Eve. So if, Adam, if, if, if Satan overthrew both sexes, the male and the female, it does have to take both sexes to liberate humanity back from Satan. If Satan overthrew both Adam and Eve, it's going to take a man or a man and a woman. Satan overthrew a man and a woman. It's going to take a man and a woman to liberate it. Both a new Adam and a new Eve. Who's the new Adam? Jesus, of course. Who's the new Eve? Mary. Now that doesn't mean the grace comes from her. The grace only comes from God, but it goes through her, her fiat. This is amazing. So the name, which seems like a lack of affection, woman, actually expresses Mary's mission. And, and in his words, woman, what, what do I have to do with you? My hour is not yet come. It's not a dismissal. It shows her intercessory power because Jesus ends up doing it. And his father, Stephen Shire, used to say, the Trinity cannot say no to Mary. Get her on your side. If the Trinity can't say no to her and she's defending you, God will accept that. That's the whole story of Stephen Shire getting killed, going before the judgment throne of God, and Mary interceded. And God's mercy was given. It, amazing. All right. So he does this miracle. 
And he is, it's anticipating the hour that's coming up, the hour of the Eucharist, where he will come to us. Why? Because he's preparing the wine to be his precious blood. This most critical miracle, it's greater than any healing, is done through the intercession of Mary. He wasn't going to do it, at least not yet. Now, Jesus has now given us the wine, which will be used to become his blood, the blood of life. So this is then, we set the stage for John now in the foreshadowing of the Eucharist. So now Jesus has prepared the precious blood. Now we're going to talk about the Eucharist. Let's go to our next slide. That is the wedding, or excuse me, the multiplication of the loaves. John chapter 6, verse 1 through 15. In this, and again, I wanted to read it, but I can summarize it, I think, well for you. What happens? Now this miracle what we call feeding of the 5,000. There were two others called feeding of the 4,000, which were different miracles. Six times appear in the Bible. In fact, this is the only miracle other than the resurrection that appears in all four gospels. Now, it, <laughs> it's amazing. Okay, what happens? All right. They're all out. Jesus is preaching, right? Kind of like Liturgy of the Word. And then after he's preaching, the people are hungry. They want to eat, like liturgy of the Eucharist. The Eucharist is a meal and a sacrifice. It's meant to be a meal. So as we, as we see Jesus doing this, they say, the apostles say, well, geez, these people are hungry now, uh, Rabbi. It's, uh, it's getting late. Um, we got no food. It would take us a ton of money to go buy the food, send them home. And what does Jesus do? He says, no. He says, don't send them home. What do we have? Now, it's different accounts in different gospel passages, but in one account, there's a boy. And he has five barley loaves of bread and two fish. And what does Jesus do? He feeds the entire 5,000. And that is just the men, not including women and children. So there are thousands of people here. And Jesus feeds them. But how does he feed them? Does Jesus go feed them? No. He has the apostles, just like the priest at the mass, feeds the congregation. Well, I only need Jesus myself. Well, Jesus chose to feed those people and us through the church. Let's look at this. You know, it's funny because it seems like the apostles completely forgot Cana already. We already had Canaan. Now, it looks like they forgot it because they could have said, Lord, take care of the shortage like you did the wine at Cana. But they didn't. Instead, the apostles asked, where in this place, remote area, wilderness, can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Well, you know, the Israelites faced the same lack in the wilderness, right? In the desert. They faced the same problem. All right. Now, there God gave them the manna. He made the miracle and increased the bread for them to eat. Jesus himself will now do the same thing. So I want to show you another quick two-minute video right now that kind of gives you a summary. And it's a good little video. I, I go through dozens of these things to pick you what I feel is the best summary. And I feel I, I got a good one here that shows you what happened at the multiplication of the loaves. Let's watch this two-minute video. The early church loved this story because it prefigures the Eucharist. And it's not just prefiguring 
the Last Supper, but it prefigures what the, how the early church celebrated Eucharist and even how we celebrate Eucharist today. Let's break down the elements. All the people are gathered to listen to Jesus talk about the kingdom of heaven. That's like the liturgy of the word, where we come and we listen to scripture. Following the liturgy of the word, we're all hungry. Now it's time for the liturgy of the Eucharist. Jesus instructs the disciples to arrange the people into groups of 50 each. 50 was a number that was symbolic for the church. Think Pentecost is 50 days after resurrection. Even 50 AD is when the Council of Jerusalem met and we began a new church at that moment. 50 is a number that's symbolic of the church. So essentially this large community is divided into little 50s, little house churches. And it's in these little churches the people are going to have their fill. Little boxes made of ticky-tacky, little boxes on the hillside, little boxes all the same. So there are seven food items. There are five loaves of bread and two fish. Seven. On the seventh day is when we worship God, the Sabbath day, the Lord's day. Bread, of course, is symbolic of Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life. He talks about at the Last Supper, this bread is me. Bread's clearly Jesus. What about the fish? The fish was the symbol for the early church. Before we rebranded and made it the cross, the fish was originally the symbol for Christianity. Give me that daffodil fish. Give me that fish. So essentially that number seven is saying with Jesus and the church, we will have our fill coming together to nourish. It's a camaraderie. Jesus takes the loaves and the fish and he looks up to heaven and blesses and breaks them and gives them to the disciples to set before the crowd. This is just like the Eucharistic prayer. It's interesting how the disciples are the ones carrying out the message. Of course, that's what the early church was. It was the disciples of Jesus. And the fragments left over in Greek, the word fragment there is actually the same Greek word that referred to the Eucharistic wafer. Okay, so they have 12 baskets of leftovers, 12 baskets of Eucharistic waivers. Why 12? Because it's the apostles that continue what Jesus started. It's the apostles that continue the Holy Eucharist. Okay, and what else does the story have in common? Jesus is present. And, and today, in the Catholic Church, we believe Jesus is present. He was present to start this thing, and he's still with us, nourishing us. Now, I, I think that's a good summary because what I like about that video is it shows how the early church celebrated the Eucharist. You basically had a large gathering. They listened to teaching the word. Then they were hungry and they shared the meal, a meal. Now, what's interesting is this was a big, large community of followers, over 5,000. But in some of the gospel accounts, Jesus separates them into small groups these are like parishes. We're all part of the larger church, the universal church, but we have our own life in our little parish. This is how the church worshiped. This is how Jesus set it up. He's the one who put them into the smaller groups. This is Jesus forming parishes. It's amazing. So Jesus then feeds them through the church because he uses the disciples to distribute. These are the priests. So this miracle shows how Christ rewards us if we just follow him. You came here seeking Jesus. He will reward you with food, the bread of life, not just physical food, spiritual. 
We see that a disciple is basically helpless without Jesus. But do you also see that the Lord, in a way, is helpless without his disciple? Now, it's not because he doesn't have the power not to be. It's because he chooses to work through those disciples. Remember when it said there was a lack of faith, Jesus couldn't work miracles in the particular town, his own hometown? Now, what about here? He says, come to me as you are. Bring me what little you have, and I will use it. What little they had was five loaves and two fish. Jesus didn't start from nothing. It's like the sacraments. People who don't have the sacraments don't understand why we use bread and wine. It's because Jesus always started with something. He used something. Even God used mud to form Adam. He just didn't snap his finger. He used him out of the dirt. And this is how we were formed, and to dust we will return. Now, He needs people to give what they have, no matter how small it is, like this boy with five loaves of bread or one fish, two fish, or the widow with the two coins. What little we got doesn't matter. He needs people to whom he can give, so in order that they may give to others. And how does he give to us? When we empty ourselves like Cana. You see how this all ties together. When I'm sitting in scripture class learning all this, I'm going, oh my goodness. And this is why I want to share it with all of you. I want to share it with the world. If we all Catholics see this connection and see this power, we would all be Catholic. Instead of Catholics not even celebrating our faith. Not only would Catholics come back, people who are not Catholics would come to the church. So God is saying this, empty yourself, I'll give it to you, and then I want you to share it. And we're going to talk about how that happens at the Mass. So what does he do? He gives to others. Jesus says they have no need to go home. You feed them. You apostles, disciples, you feed these people. He says this for our instruction, so we will know what to do. Jesus gives to us so that we should go give to others, especially those in need. That's who the fifth 5,000 represent. Now, Jesus gave thanks, said the blessing, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples. What does that sound like? That's the mass. That's the Eucharistic prayer. It's right there in the Bible. Where's the mass in the Bible? Right there, and then it leads to the Last Supper. First, Jesus provided the wine at Cana. Now he provides the bread. Jesus uses real things that we use every day and sanctifies them. Bread and wine are what they ate at all the meals. And so he used that. That's what the sacrament is, the form and the matter. The, The matter is the bread and the wine. The form is, this is my body which will be given up for you. Now it's become his body, the form and the matter. The matter is the bread and the wine. The form are the words to make it happen, the words of the priest, which were the words of Jesus. The priest didn't use his own words. That's why the words of institution have to be exact. Now, God normally takes these ordinary things that, you know, of our own lives and transforms them for his greater glory. Now, Jesus gave these to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowd. This shows they were the first priests. This shows that it is God's will that the heavenly food be distributed through the church. 
powerful. This prefigures what's coming up in the miracle of the Eucharist given to the priests by Jesus at the Last Supper. Wow. And then the apostles will give it to others. Now, what about the extra, real quick? The extra has significance here because it said there was extra over in one account to fill 12 wicker baskets. This is because we should be content with what God gives us is sufficient and not to take more than we need. Let there be extra so that it can be given away. What God gives, he gives abundantly more than we need so that extra we should share with others. When Jesus gets done with you, you'll have more than you'll ever need in grace. You'll have much more than you began with. It's like at the mass. What happens? You were fed at the mass. You were fed the word like Jesus feeds here in the wilderness with the 5,000. You were fed the bread like Jesus fed at the wilderness with 5,000. You were fed the Eucharist. And at the mass, what happens? After you learn and you are fed, the mass says, go and announce the gospel to the Lord. Ite misse est, go, the church is sending you. What does that mean? You have been given much, now go share it. This is powerful. Here the people were hungry for something more than just physical food. They were given the spiritual, so are we. So it's the same with us. When we, when, we, when we are here, we are hungry. In our lives, we are naturally hungry for the spiritual. Even people who don't come to church are naturally hungry for the spiritual. You know, I was given a, a, a conference to some um, uh, high school kids for confirmation, and, and um, this couple of the girls kept bringing up uh, the, the zombies and the um, vampires. And whatever thing I would talk about, they seemed to like three or four times bring in these zombies and vampires into this thing that we were working on. And finally I stopped and I asked one of the girls, what, what, why do you think there's such a fascination with, with your, you know, your friends and you with these vampires and, and, and zombies and everything? She goes, oh, vampires are cool. This is, this is true. I, this blows me away. She said to me, Vampires drink blood and live forever. <laughs> That's the mass. You drink the precious blood, you'll live forever. You see, we inherently have that need for the spiritual in our hearts and we're striving for it. But it's right here. We don't need to go to a zombie or a vampire. It's right here. So your grandchildren or whatever, they're into that. This is really where it's at. My drink is true, uh, dr or my blood is true drink. It will live, you'll live forever. Sometimes God uses these miracles of our faith and, and to show us that he can make us be given this grace. Amazing. All right, let's keep going. Um, all right, so Jesus is pointing to himself as the bread, right? Now, I should mention that he also multiplies fish. What are the meaning of the fish? The fish, to be fishers of men, he wants to multiply the people coming back to him, to the church, more and more. Bring me more fish. You be fishers of men. Now, Jesus is pointing to himself as the bread, which gives us life, and he will do this again at the Last Supper. The miracle was not worked, as I said, from nothing, but it was from a sharing of what the simple child had and what others may have had there. Jesus does not ask for what we don't have. If he didn't give me a particular grace, he's not gonna ask me as a priest to do it. He's not gonna ask you either. Rather, he makes us see that if each person offers the little bit that 
that of all the um, vast amount God has given them. That's what tithing is. Tithing is just give, giving back a little bit what God gave you. Tithing 10% is like, look at I gave you 100%. Just give back 10 to God. That's what tithing is. Now, he makes us see that if each person offers the little he has, God can work a miracle. All right, God is capable of multiplying our smallest acts of love, like the bread, and making us share his, in his greatest gifts, the body of Christ. Now, indeed, it is not the Eucharistic food that is changed into us, but rather we are transformed. This is Augustine or Aquinas. Now, the Protestant view, God bless our non-Catholic brethren, but they don't believe we are transformed. Martin Luther used to describe us as a pile of dung, which we are, without God's grace. And he said, we are like snow-covered dunghills. Martin Luther said, the idea to him was that we're, we're dung, but God's grace just covers us like a snow cover over a pile of dung. It's still a pile of dung. The Catholic Church believes that if you truly open your heart and you truly open yourself to the sacraments, you will be transformed. You will not remain that pile of dung. You will become Christ-like and enter into heaven. There's no dung allowed in heaven. How could we remain dung? That would mean dung is in heaven. No, there's no dung in heaven. We are transformed. It's impossible for Martin Luther to be correct. We can't stay dung and enter into heaven. We have to be transformed by his grace. That's how we're saved. We are saved by that transformation grace. And this is powerful stuff. All right, now, Okay, so basically, this is what God is doing. He's working a miracle. All right, now, Protestant view, as I said, kind of is different from us. Now, we need this food from heaven. We need it daily. I mean, look at the, our Father. Give us today our daily bread. It's, it's, it's a daily. We have to have this. Conversion is daily. It's not a one-time thing I declared 16 years ago. It's daily. That's why, that's why we receive the daily bread. Now, in the Old Testament, Moses gave bread to the people, the manna. Did you know he also changed water into wine? You may not know that. Moses did. Now Jesus is presented as the new Moses. Let's look at our next slide. This is the transfiguration. That's a beautiful painting. We see uh, Peter, James, and John there lying on the ground. Who's with Jesus? On the left is Moses, see, the law, and on the right is Elijah, the prophets. Now, at the transfiguration, did you know that it was right after this miracle of feeding the 5,000? Jesus is transfigured. Now, that's the reading in tomorrow's gospel. Interesting. Jesus meets Moses on the mountain. Now, let's look at this. Moses led the Exodus, passed through the Red Sea, which was baptism, and then provided miraculous bread in the wilderness. That's the manna. Now Jesus gives bread as well in the wilderness for the journey that those people are on. Little different journey than the Jews in the desert with Moses, but we all go through this journey. This is our daily 
daily task, getting through life day at a time, one day at a time. Now, Jesus is this new Moses. He's on a mountain with these 5,000 people, like Moses was on a mountain with his inner circle. He has a shining face. Pretty much you would know that he would be shining as he was giving and helping these 5,000 like he was on the mountain. And he's ready to lead an exodus. Moses, just like Moses had a shining face and led an exodus out of Egypt, Jesus has a shining face because in the transfiguration, he is glorified, so he was emitting light. So he didn't have just a shining face at the 5,000. He really has a shining face at the transfiguration. So think about this for a minute. Moses was on a mountain. He had a shining face. He led an exodus. Jesus is now on the mountain of the transfiguration, right? Mount Tabor. He has a shining face. He's glowing. He's in a glorified state, and he's ready to lead an exodus. What is the exodus? Away from sin. Wow. The people saw this connection between Jesus and Moses. How do I know that? Because they wanted to make him a king. Here's what's interesting. The manna and the miraculous blood, or the bread, I should say, the manna feeding like Moses did, and now Jesus makes this miraculous blood. They saw the connection. Then Jesus took it farther. Those are things I kind of knew before seminary, but this I did not know before seminary. This is why I'm taking you to seminary class with me. There are five books of Moses called the Torah or the Pentateuch. You know, Genesis, uh, Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers. Okay, these, Deuteronomy. These are the five books of the Pentateuch. That's why Jesus started with five loaves of bread. Because he's changing the law written in stone to the new covenant of love and the Eucharist. Incredible. He is transforming the Mosaic law into something much greater and much more nourishing. The Eucharist. We use the word multiplication. Jesus multiplied the bread. But he actually, do you know that the word multiplication never appears in the text here of John? There's a theologian named Frank Sheed. And listen to what he says. The gospel, I'm quoting him, the gospel makes clear that the loaves themselves were not really multiplied at all. <laughs> well, wait a minute, Father, what the heck have you been telling us then? There were five of them at the beginning and there were five of them at the end, left over. It ended up being the same. There's no multiplication in the end. They started with five, they ended with five, but what was the difference? 5,000 were now satisfied. So Sheed said, quote, it was their presence that was multiplied. The presence and the number of parts of space they occupied at the same time. Here's what he said, multi-location of loaves would actually be more accurate. And you know why I love that quote and I read it? Because it explains to the non-Catholics who tell us, you Catholics are crazy, you can't break up the body of Jesus 
And this was an argument that went back centuries and you can't have Jesus broken over there at St. Mary's and 25 miles down the road, Jesus broken up and be there at St. Peter's. You Catholics are nuts. You can't break up the body of Christ. He's one. This actually answers that because Jesus did it. He didn't multiply himself. He brought himself to more people. His presence was magnified. So the more churches we have, the more presence God has magnified. Jesus was not multiplied into many bodies at, at, at the churches. This is part of one body. His presence is multiplied or multi-location. This is unbelievable. This is beautiful. So, you know, I want to finish with this because this is a common argument I used to hear a lot. Some say that this is not a miracle, but it was, or I should say, it's not a miracle Jesus worked. The true miracle was teaching selfish people to share. <laughs> That's funny, isn't it? The real miracle was teaching selfish people to share. I, I'm surprised how common this is. Many people hold this view. The people wanted to make him a king, though. If you want to make this guy a king, let me tell you this. It's not because selfish people were sharing. If you thought enough of this guy to make him a king, it must be because he worked a miracle. You know, in the desert, when, when the uh, manna was multiplied and God gave the, the, the Jews in the desert with Moses manna, they didn't share. The Israelites weren't hiding pieces of bread in their coats and in their tents. And all of a sudden, at one night, all came out together and decided to lay it out on the ground. Because remember, that's what happened in the Old Testament. Overnight, they came out and the ground was filled with manna. So were they hiding it? <clears throat> and they went out and they started sharing it and they started taking it from their bags and saying, you know what, I better share this. No, God worked a miracle. He gave them bread they didn't have. They were starving and Jesus just did the same thing. No, God performed the miracle. And this, in the desert, people knew that, and now they see it in Jesus. If he had just given a lesson on sharing, the people would have went around patting each other on the back. Hey, Joe, thanks for sharing with me, bro. No, that's not what happened. They didn't go around patting each other on the back. They turned around and said, we need to make this man, Jesus, a king. But in a minute, I'll tell you why Jesus didn't want that. The, the shearers would have been the heroes and the ones receiving the praise. Instead, they praised Jesus and wanted to make him a king. The, these answers are, are incredible if we know our Catholic faith. All right, like the sacraments, Jesus used something, bread and wine again, and, or should say, sorry, um, water to turn into wine at Cana and bread to turn into the Eucharist, or the wine will now be turned into the body, the blood of Christ, but he uses the bread now to turn it into the Eucharist. So to feed many, he does like he does with the sacraments. He feeds many. The physical sign of multiplying bread itself is a symbol pointing to the Eucharist. It led to this declaration of Christ, I am the bread of life. John 6.35, right out of scripture. So there was great shock. Now, this is people don't understand this. Great shock when Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's John 6.53. How? How do we do this? 
This is the bread of life discourse. And before we go to our next slide, this one we have to read because this one is where our whole faith, and, and I would have to tell you my favorite passage, I think, of the Bible. Let's read John chapter 6, verse 48 to 58. You want to know why you're a Catholic? You want to know why I'm a Catholic? I'm going to show you why you're a Catholic and why I'm a Catholic. And if you're not, I'm going to show you why you should be Catholic with a bunch of love, not pointing fingers. But if you hear the words of Jesus, we'll see. All right. I am the bread of life. This is John 6, 48 to 58. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. If Jesus was speaking symbolically, he would have stopped here. The reason that you repeated things in these ancient times was to emphasize the truth of them. Like when we say God is holy, we say holy, holy, holy. He's the holiest. They don't have the superlative. And so if God was speaking symbolically or Jesus was speaking symbolically, he would have ended here. Did he stop? No, he kept going. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. Does he stop? No, he keeps going. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Whoa. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, not figuratively or symbolically, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh, and I'm not repeating this, I'm going on and on in the gospel. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you think Jesus finally got his point across? He still keeps on going. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not such the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus goes on and on and on. There is nothing symbolic about this. This is the true message. And so this is what we are looking at. And so the next slide, I don't know if Brother Mark showed it. Let's look at slide number nine. This is what we call the bread of life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food. This is the bread of life discourse. So I'm glad that you could see that. That is so important. All right, now, this is John, chapter 6, 48 to 58. And you know what's interesting? Do you know when this was? Do you know when this happened? I didn't. The next day, he fed the 5,000 in John 6, verse 1 through 15. I think that's right. John 6, 1 through 15. Now, this is John 6 later in the chapter. It's the very next day. 
you don't think there's a connection? Oh, yeah, there's a connection. This is it. This is everything for us. This verse is why we are Catholic, as I said. Jesus tells them not to search for perishable bread, but the bread that endures for eternal life. Unless you eat it and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So this amazing statement was made because this would be something that Christ knew would be problematic. It was theologically problematic to the people, but he didn't change it. He didn't stop and say, no, I didn't mean it literally. This is problematic for the Jews at the time. Why? Because the Old Testament is filled with prohibitions against eating flesh with blood in it. They could not eat the animal flesh with blood in it. Why? Because blood was the life of the being and only God could take that life. They could not eat the blood. That's why the Jews eat koshered meals. Jesus is proposing not just the eating of that kind of flesh, but now his own human flesh. They're like, are you a cannibal? This is why he transforms it. He keeps the substance, or sorry, the accidents the same, bread and wine. So you're eating those accidents, but your substance is the body and blood of Christ. Now, in the original language, the Greek word, because remember, what were the gospels written in? Well, originally they may have been written in Hebrew or Aramaic. What we have now today, the only copies of the originals that we have are Greek. And in the Greek, the verb for eat is not phasian, which is normally what they would use for human eating. The verb used is the verb tragon or tragian. And that is a verb that designates the way animals eat. <laughs> If you ever saw me eating on racing to my next meeting, you probably could, could equate that. But the problem is, it literally means gnawing, chewing with your teeth. It literally means to chew, to eat. It means to, that Jesus was talking literally to eat, not symbolically like, feed my soul, I'll eat it up. We're talking literally to eat. So Jesus adds, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. How does this happen? How did it go from bread and wine to his flesh and blood? How is this transformation possible? It's transubstantiation. It's done. And from the wine, the bread to wine and the body to blood, or sorry, I'm sorry, the bread to the bread and the wine become the body and blood. Sorry. This is the whole source and summit of our faith. Jesus is the word of God, all right? So his words have the power to transform anything. So when he speaks, this is how God created the world. He spoke and there was a transformation. Now God speaks and transforms a substance, bread and wine into the body and blood. Now, remember the matter is the bread and the wine, the form, the words when he speaks, is the words of institution, the consecration. This is my body, which will be given up for you. This is why the ordinary bread and wine became the extraordinary body and blood of Christ, his very body and blood. Wow. At the consecration now, the priest pronounces the words of Christ, the words he used to make that transformation or that transubstantiation not the priest's own words. That's why he can't change them. And that's why a priest cannot change the words of consecration. 
He acts not in his own person, but in the person of Christ, in persona Christi. And hence, he affects this transformation by using Christ's own words. That doesn't mean when he leaves the altar that he's perfectly Jesus. No, he's going to sin, mess up, do dumb things. But when he's at the altar, Christ steps in. This is transubstantiation, a change of substance. This is why we need a priest. I love this example. I'm going to read you from St. Faustina. Jesus told St. Faustina. Let me pull this up in the diary, number 442. All right, so bear with me. Number 442 in the diary. Listen to what Jesus says, or uh, St. Faustina. Once, when my confessor, Father Sapochko, was saying Mass, I saw, as usual, the Christ child on the altar. From the time of the offertory, however, a moment before the elevation, this is what we call the high point of the Mass, the concluding doxology, where we raise the patent and the, and the wine, the bread and the, and, or the um, body and blood, right? The priest vanished from my sight, and Jesus alone remained. When the moment of the elevation approached, Jesus took the host and the chalice in his little hands and raised them together, looking up to heaven. This is what's going on. I always say at the mass, when you raise it up, this is God offering God to God. That's why Jesus stepped in. It's him offering it. That's why the mass is perfect. It's God offering God to God. Jesus offering himself to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. Here it is. This is incredible. And so what we have here is right in Faustina's words. I was, he looked up to heaven, and a moment later, I again saw my confessor. I asked the child Jesus where the priest had been during the time I had not seen him. And Jesus answered, in my heart. Are you kidding me? Wow. All right, we're wrapping up here. Stay with me. This is powerful. Jesus reveals the meaning of this miracle. God the Father, who had fed the Israelites in the desert with manna, now sends his Son as the true bread. That's what Jesus just told us. And the bread is his flesh and blood offered in sacrifice for us. Now he paid the penalty for sin by dying, but now he triumphs that death. He restores our life. Remember, dying, you destroyed our death. Rising, you restored our life. Come, Lord Jesus. So the people and the disciples weren't getting this yet. You know, they were more happy over the physical miracles, like, like Jesus healing people or making more bread. But now he does the true miracle at the Last Supper. And the disciples, you know, and the other crowds would be enthusiastic when he performed these physical miracles, like making more fish or bread. But there's a deeper meaning. The multiplication of the loaves and the fish was a revelation to them that he was the Messiah. So the crowd would have liked to carry him away as a king. They saw he did what Moses did. They thought he was a great man and proclaim him king. But this is not what Jesus wanted. And I want to finish here. With this bread of life discourse, Jesus basically squashes their enthusiasm, <laughs> basically takes it all away. I'm not going to be your king. There's something greater. Well, he is, but not the kind of king they wanted. He doesn't tell them it is symbolic. 
He tells them that they have to eat his body and drink his blood. Why? To share in his sacrifice. And then you're like, oh man, now I got to share in a sacrifice. That's the way to eternal life. There's no resurrection Easter Sunday without Good Friday. Jesus affirms that he has been sent to offer his own life, and he who wants to follow him must join in a deep personal way the participation in the sacrifice of love. So last few sentences. Jesus went on to institute the sacrament of the Eucharist at the Last Supper so that then the disciples as priests could share it with the world and that's exactly what happened. This was crucial. As one body is united with him and one more is added to him, his presence spreads. That's why every one of you who is watching today, who has come back to the faith, has come back to your church, has come back to confession and communion, has added to Christ's presence in the world. God bless you for that. That's what being a Marian helper is. That's what being a Catholic is. And so this is it. He extends this mystery of salvation to the whole world, and you are part of that. That's why my last two slides we're going to show right now. So Brother Mark puts up, Christ gave the apostles and their successors the authority to govern in his place, which is the church. Don't believe me? Luke 22, 29 through 30. And to sanctify her through the sacraments, especially the Eucharist. And there we have John 6, 54 and 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Let's go to our slide, final slide. In the blessed sacrament, you will find romance. Ladies, who out there isn't looking for romance? We all are. In the blessed sacrament, we'll find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves upon the earth. God bless all of you for being with us and for sharing in this incredible idea of the Eucharist in the scriptures. And you know, the meaning of the mass, I couldn't get to fully here because it's so deep. But if you would like to read more or hear more about that, Brother Mark, could you show our last slide? I just finished writing this book. It's called Understanding Divine Mercy. And I expand a lot deeper in a lot of things I talked about here today. Please consider getting it for you or a loved ones. You can get it at shopmercy.org or 800-462-7426. And I tell you what, I'm not just out to sell books. I'm out to bring souls to Christ. You can't afford it. Send me an email. I'll send you a free copy. It's not about that. It's, it's, it's what we can do to save souls. Help us spread this message. I don't know what else to say other than we have everything in our Catholic faith. And God bless you because God's grace is actively working in you or you wouldn't be here today. Respond to that grace. You want to be saved? All it is is the grace of God that we cooperate with. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, I'm Father Chris Aylar, and I'm excited to tell you about the completion of my newest project that's been a long time in the making. It's called Understanding Divine Mercy, my new book for Marian Press that finally in one place, I feel, gives you the, all the answers of everything you need to know about God's divine mercy. 
In fact, it answers what is divine mercy? Who is St. Faustina? And what message did God give her for the world? How about the Feast of Divine Mercy? And what do you have to do to receive the graces that Jesus promises on this one day of the year? We talk about the meaning of the image and how to pray the novena and how to understand the chaplet and what to do in the hour of mercy and much, much more. Answering questions like, why would a merciful God allow such suffering? So please, we hope that you'll pick up a copy of this book for you and your loved ones, because if you get the understanding of what God's mercy is, you will understand why Jesus said it's mankind's last hope of salvation. So please visit us at shopmercy.org or give us a call at 800-462-7426. Thank you and may Almighty God bless you. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit divinemercyplus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's divinemercyplus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.